join us in the dustiest corners of the video store, the back row of the grindhouse, the furthest regions of celluloid. This is Video Store Nightmares. Hello and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the monstrous films of the VHS era. Tonight, we're going back to Italy and more specifically, the films of Joe D'Amato and talking about 1981's Absurd, also known as Monster Hunter. My name is Luke and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, as of this broadcast, you can watch 1981's Absurd on YouTube and Tubi and probably a lot of other places. This is an easy one to get a hold of. Which is, it's amazing because I remember when I first saw this movie, I got it from a video store. It was probably like early 2000s. And at that time, the Wizard VHS tape, which was the only US release, was going for about 150 to 200 dollars and that was one of the the higher priced tapes back then now i know people spend fucking five thousand dollars on tape but back then they didn't um now this movie's so available um which is cool because i think people should be able to see the movie but i do remember when it was really obscure but this is um some people consider this a sequel to anthropophagus do you remember Anthropophagus well enough to comment on that? No. In fact, I struggled to think if I had ever seen it. I know I've seen the box. I know I've heard lots of people talk about it. I don't think I've actually seen it. Well, it's it, there are some similarities. Like Anthropophagus is about a group of people who go to this abandoned Greek island and there's this mutilated cannibal roaming around the island killing and eating anyone that he encounters um and he is played by george eastman who also plays the villain in absurd but the two characters don't look the same and anthropophagus he's got like this mutilated burned up face and he's more like animalistic i guess and and plus he dies at the end of that movie so um but in, in this movie in absurd he's still from greece which is odd so i don't know there's this weird like spiritual connection between the films but they're not actually connected did he also write the screenplay for anthropophagus george eastman did yeah yeah so well maybe he just wanted to do a spiritual successor I mean, I think that this is an aside. Um, uh, Anthropophagus was on Joe Bob Briggs a couple weeks ago, and um, he described the the incidents by which George Eastman came to write the script uh, it, more specifically than I'd heard before. And it sounded like basically Joe D'Amato had this script that he wanted George Eastman to be in. And George Eastman said, okay, but your script is, it, it sucks. Like it needs to be rewritten. And so Joe D'Amato let him rewrite it. 
And then Monster Hunter or Absurd was more a case of um, Eastman wrote something on his own and brought it to Joe D'Amato. Um, but maybe he was like, you know, I really enjoyed playing that cannibal maniac who slaughtered indiscriminately. Like, let me write another story like that. So where did his career go from here? Uh, he was in tons and tons of movies. Um, I mean, he, he didn't, uh, I don't think he wrote a lot of films, but um, we, should st- we should start by saying his real name uh, is not George Eastman. He was actually, in, in my wizard video, he has, he's credited as John Cart. We know him as George Eastman. His birth name is Luigi Montefiore. And he's about six foot seven, and he's the perfect person to play an intimidating, monstrous role like this. Like, so he was cast in a lot. He was often cast as the bad guy or like the heavy in Western films, for example. Um, anyway, what do you think of him? So sometimes in film, it's kind of hard to get the right perspective on heights because naturally a lot of actors are tall because it's easier to get them on film and in shot. But even when you have an entire cast full of uh, normal, heighted actors, this guy still towers above all of them. And it's not just platform trick shots with cameras, because this guy is in full frame walking down hallways. Yeah, he he looks incredibly imposing. There's a scene at the end where he's holding some other guy up by his neck. And in that scene, it legitimately looks like he's double the height of the other guy. Like imagine tall man, but actually tall. Right. No tricks. No like uh, suit two sizes too small. Do you remember what? What is that? We I think you watched it with me. There's an Italian caveman movie where George Eastman is the main character. And it's it's just cavemen who are like fighting over the discovery of iron or something. Does this ring a bell? Oh, God. Uh, All right. So we got an Italian caveman film. And we're talking about like this is in the B.C., right? (laughs) Very, very, very bc yeah let me grab my vhs i have to see what it's called i damn well know i've seen this but yeah it's called iron master yeah okay i remember watching it but i could not tell you what happened in what order and if anyone actually came home with iron because all of those prehistory cavemen film play out the same way there's like no dialogue it's just grunting they fight against animals dinosaurs if it's a cool film and uh and that's it i guess there's like some sort of message of the human spirit at the end oh well this one is directed by umberto Lindsay, uh and it stars George Eastman. And my point in bringing it up was, I think that's the first movie I ever saw George Eastman in. So I always think of him as like a barbaric caveman, but he just has the perfect look. He, he wrote the screenplay for a lot of cool movies, actually. A lot of Joe D'Amato's films. The Great Alligator, uh, Porno Holocaust, 2020 Texas Gladiator. Oh, wait. All right, here's the one I need to see. 
He wrote a movie called Dog Lay Afternoon. And the summary is Janine is a girl who has been traumatized since childhood after having inadvertently seen her mother mate with the family's Doberman dog. Someone wrote a screenplay about that. And then it took a completely different person to green like that and present it to a producer who then decided this was a great idea. Uh, I, I may be watching that one tonight. We'll see. But anyway, yeah, he was in he he acted in 60 movies. Um it see it, it looks like in many of them he is a barbarian, a caveman, or a cannibal. Not even Ron Perlman has probably been cast in that many roles. And I would say he probably fits visually more that archetype. Yeah. But regardless, I think George Eastman's great. I think he's great in this movie. Um I think, uh, you know, like just imagine if Michael Myers was not wearing a mask and made these vicious, evil, barbaric facial expressions. And that's this role. So do we want to just get into it now, how this is basically a Halloween ripoff? I I mean, it's very similar to Halloween in the second half, especially. But I, so were a lot of slasher movies like. I just feel like this was one of the sea of uh, generic slashers, but like done Italian style. I'm actually kind of bothered by the lack of setup and backstory to this, though. It just feels so lazy. (laughs) You know, the first time I saw it, I kind of felt that way. Because when when this movie starts, you're just kind of, dropped into it and it it starts with george eastman is running through the woods and he's being chased by a priest and you don't know what the hell's going on and you don't find out what's going on for like 30 more minutes when you get your exposition and now upon repeat viewings i kind of like it it kind of gives the movie this weird dreamlike logic to me yeah but this exposition right Like, imagine waiting in line for 35, 40 minutes, and then your exposition is two sentences long and never, (laughs) never explained fully at all throughout the rest of the film. Hey, when they started trying to explain Michael Myers, that's when the Halloween uh, franchise went off the rails. So I'm, I'm totally happy with it being inexplicable. Like, all right, this guy's uh, an eternally rejuvenating monster man who uh, somehow harnesses energy from the people he kills like, and it goes more insane with each death. All right, I'm there. Like, I'll, I'll, I can work with that. I don't think this guy actually gets more insane with each death. I think he's just permanently deranged. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a moment where the... I can't remember if it's the priest, priest or the doctor who says that the the process of restoring or replacing his cells has driven him insane. Oh, you meant his own death makes him yeah. insane. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that that made no, no, me think no, like, okay, sense. so every time every time this guy gets shot or chopped or whatever, when he regenerates, he gets crazier. Yeah. Okay. That's how I interpreted it. Anyway, um, 
let's talk about a few more technical things and then we'll play the trailer. I think I said last week that Goblin did the music, which was incorrect. Um, Goblin did not do this score. Uh, this score was done by Carlo Maria Cordillo. He did the uh, scores for a lot of Bruno Mattei films. And we saw a Bruno Mattei film earlier in the podcast, uh, which was Night Killer. So he did the music for that as well. What do you think of the music? Okay, so Goblin did not do the music, but it's pretty Goblin-esque. It is, yeah. You can see why I, I recalled it being Goblin. This film has a lot of the, um, the what I guess you could call the pillars, the support pillars of what makes a traditional old Italian horror film. And one of those is like solid electronic music from like the early 80s. I think it's the best part of the film, except for maybe the uh, the gore scenes. But that's not where the, the issue of this film lies. I think the, the, the big issue is that I think this guy, when he's writing the script, had a couple of ideas, a couple scenes that were good on paper. And then he just kind of struggled to link them all together. And if that required some awesome music to do it, then, you know, more power to him. Yeah, I have a feeling I'm not as critical of this movie as you are, but I think, and I'll get more into this later, but I feel like this movie is, it's like a 30 minute long masterpiece buried at the end of like a three star slasher movie. <laughs> that, that's kind of how I feel about it. So like, I like the whole movie. But you're really in it for the last half hour, which I just think is phenomenal. But we'll get there. Um, let me let me read you the back of the box and then we'll play the trailer. So the box is a little misleading. It It is a cool, big wizard video box. Uh, but like a lot of them, um, you know, fuck Charlie Band. Uh, they are very misleading. So we've got like a whole army of zombies that are marching towards us. And then there's a priest in the background holding aloft a crucifix as if he's banishing them. And it says, pray you survive the hunt. Into a seemingly tranquil village comes a priest with a secret mission to hunt and destroy inhuman beasts and demonic spirits. The priest finds more than he bargained for, a witch who cruelly blinds her victims, a sinister fog of doom, mutated creatures bent on revenge. The priest's monster hunt leads him to the dreaded villa of Dr. Kramer, hidden deep in the shrouded forest where no villager dares to go. And here lurks an unspeakable trap, a web of supernatural terror that crushes the souls of its victims. The fuck is half that box from? <laughs> yeah, I think this is the most misleading description I've ever seen on a video. No, yeah, that takes the cake. We've we've done a lot of these by this point, and that's definitely the the worst box. I mean, if you have not seen this movie, all right, the pictures on the back of the box are from the movie, and the first sentence describes the movie, and, and then nothing else. None of that other stuff is in here. Is the doctor's name even Doctor Kramer? I don't think so. <laughs> 
I don't know. Let's watch the let's listen to the trailer and see if it's uh, any more accurate. Well, speaking of the music, this trailer is essentially a two minute demo tape of what you can expect. If you I'm totally watched. down for that. <laughs> well, um, that also that's also a trailer that has uh, basically all the good scenes packed into about two minutes to lure you in. Oh, as as they as they did, as you do when you're trying to sell a horror movie. Um, but all right, so let's let's do a very brief synopsis here. We already said we've got George Eastman. Uh, deranged killer who rejuvenates his cells comes to this town and there's a family with a little boy an older daughter who is confined to a bed because she has some sort of spinal cord issue and their parents who are outside of the house for most of the movie and ultimately george eastman makes his way to this house to terrorize them while he is sought by a priest and the sheriff a la Halloween. So this was not sufficient uh, enough of a plot for you. No, maybe I'm too high maintenance nowadays, but uh, (laughs) this did not cut it. (laughs) Well, all right. So the, the overall story is, yeah, I guess it's kind of lazy. Like, halloween template um 
but there are some scenes that are that I was surprised at how smartly they were written. So, for example, when the police have the priest in the police station and they're like, you need to tell us everything that's going on, because at this point, George Eastman has just killed somebody else. And he says, I'll tell you, but I want the doctor who examined his body in the room because otherwise you won't believe me. And I was like, that's really smart. That's something that you wouldn't ordinarily hear a horror movie character say. True. Although I definitely don't think the a real American police department would go out of its way to actually bring the doctor in to actually do that. And, and then well, they would just let the suspect rot in jail. <laughs> well, remember that this is the same police department that upon believing the, the priest gives him a gun and a car. Right. So <laughs> I think we've basically just covered the entire plot so we can just start attacking the uh the presentation of the story so one thing i really want to talk about is that this is a full italian produced made film that takes place in america but it's kind of like these people are making a film in america but have never been here (laughs) that was usually the case i mean some of them did not speak english this one is really blatant though Like, I don't get hung up on that because I just don't, I have no expectation that the movie be believable. It's just like, I'm not going to pretend this is the real world. No, enter your fantasy world. Tell me a story here. Like, I'll play by your rules, you know? No, but I feel like there are more liberties taken than usual across this entire screenplay and that's not necessarily a complaint i don't really care but i think it's fascinating to see like first of all how the medical system like the hospital just takes this bum off the street and actually just completely repairs him with absolutely no proof of insurance on him like at all hey welcome to the european fantasy view of america and I am pretty sure they think that all American law enforcement are chain smokers. Well, they might have been at this time. There's smoking in front of children in hospitals. Um, in 1981? Yeah, it was definitely like that in 1981. Uh, yeah, no, but uh, that, that's not so much a critique on like the whole um, like American image. That's just in general. I, I don't know. That's just bringing that one up while I'm thinking about it. But I, I think the bigger one is uh, what's really strange is that like nobody has a car except for law enforcement and the doctor. Everyone else has to walk around at night. Where, where do you think this takes place? Um, this was definitely filmed in Italy somewhere because... No, I mean, at- where is it supposed to take place? Oh, I have no... Somewhere in America, but I don't know if it's ever really elaborated. Like, I'm not even no. sure... I'm not even sure it's America because it's America because when you get to the police detective's office, he has a picture of Ronald Reagan on the wall. Oh, yeah, that's a good call. But no, (laughs) look, this is obviously filmed in Italy because all the houses have amazing architecture that would never be seen in this country. Like it's all very stylized, non-functional, cool shit. 
and yeah. and beautiful beautiful mid-century uh, mid-century interior decorating and furniture yeah that's like it looks really impressive would be a bitch to clean and take care of and and pay for maintenance but looks amazing especially for film that shit does not exist over here in this form at all well to me this this location reminded me of like a little seaside coastal town in the northeast like upstate massachusetts um that area and like i've spent a lot of time in those towns and a lot of people don't have cars and they walk everywhere and um that was the vibe i was getting here it's like this is a this is a northeastern small town where people travel by foot because they've got mass transit nearby and like they're you know it's old-fashioned that's not to say it's realistic i'm just it's closer to that than any other example i can think of but they they do try to go the extra mile to like push that this is america by one you know there's the picture of ronald reagan on the wall like look this is definitely america guys this picture is here um and there is a very important plot point involving a football game not even the Super Bowl, not the finals or, you know, districts or anything like that. It's just a football game. And apparently the people who produced or written or directed this film decided that Americans are so crazy about football that they turn it into like a formal event. I'm talking about fucking ties, jackets, dresses. You go over to the to, to your friend's house. You have like a fucking potluck. And then, like, you get you, you sit down, you drink fancy alcohol, and watch the game. What, I just, what I just, the fuck. <laughs> I just thought it was like a dinner party. Like, <laughs> here you have like upper class, like Martha's Vineyard type people, and this is their their weekly dinner party, and they're gonna watch football. Like, I don't know, it didn't strike me as that odd. Football is tre- treated like a holiday in this film, like a sacred know. event, and I can just. I can just imagine Europeans like getting the vague idea of what football be in America and thinking this is exactly how it is. I don't, I didn't associate it that strongly with football. I I was just thinking it was a dinner party. No, because the entire city shuts down because of this football game. Like the law enforcement character in this movie is not even someone that's high ranking. He's just like, a detective and at one point someone says like yo shouldn't we tell the chief about this and he's like no the chief is watching the football game we cannot interrupt them at all <laughs> like it's it's a grand holy event i just think that's a small town thing and you know like all right if we're gonna make the halloween comparison right in halloween everything's shut down because it's halloween and everybody is around the tv because there's a horror movie marathon on. And so how do you replicate that? But it's not Halloween. Well, we'll have it based around a football game. Like, it just seems like an easy substitute. I just think it's fascinating that the movie approaches American culture at this angle. Because I really feel like they were trying to create something authentic, authentically American, but only having a vague idea of what these things are before we move past the um the people walking around i love all the scenes of george eastman just walking down the road 
especially after he escapes from the hospital and he's just wandering down the road and you don't know like where he'll go in. I just, all of those scenes to me really established like a sense of place. And it makes me feel like maybe this isn't the real world, but it, it's, I can, I can get sucked into it. You know, like I, I think I made a comparison last week to the, um, the scenes of Jack Nance walking around in a razor head, but it's the same sort of thing. I didn't really get a sense of like world building when I was watching people walk around. I thought more about like how maybe there's less urban sprawl in Italy. And so it's more, people are more accustomed to walking from place to place. And they just tried to apply that logic to America where you might have like one house separated between six miles of woods out in the middle of nowhere is you're talking about like seaside towns earlier this definitely feels like a place where you know when you have enough money and you don't want to be around anyone you just go into the woods and make a house like a nice house and that's where you live for the rest of your life right that's that's kind of the the atmosphere i picked up in this film i don't know if that was really intended but they really just made it seem like it's totally normal to walk like 10 miles through the woods to get where you're trying to go. And it ain't on a related note, I guess. Do you, so the priest is, we find out the priest worked in a, like a re, a biological research facility and that they had George Eastman there to like experiment on him or um, to study him. Um, do, did you get the impression that, they created him or created his ability to regenerate or that he was like some freak anomaly that they acquired somehow. I specifically remember them saying that this man was created and that he escaped. And that is why the priest is chasing him. And so if you take, if, if that's the case, which I think that's the more likely scenario, then this also has real Frankenstein vibes, right? Like the second half of Frankenstein where you've got Victor chasing the monster like across the world as he goes terrorizing Victor's relatives and all of that. Um, sure. I mean, yeah, I guess you do have to keep in mind that uh, the priest chased this monster essentially overseas. Yeah. Yeah, how a man like this was able to get on it. Well, actually, you know what? It's airport security was way more lax in the 80s. So maybe yeah. that's why this guy was able to board a plane and just come on over to the U.S. It, it's the weird thing about that, though, is that did he wait until, you know, now to start killing people like or is he only interested in these people? like the characters in the movie, because he does keep coming back to their house. I think he's just trying to finish what he uh, kind of stumbled upon and started. Yeah. The, uh, well, I guess, why did Michael Myers go after Laurie Strode? We have like three explanations for that now. Um, and I don't need one. I'm fine. Uh, let's talk about the mother for a minute. Is the, oh no, not the mother. Who is Okay, there's like three different babysitters in this movie, right? <laughs> All right, so there because is... I'm trying to keep them straight in my head because I ha I took some notes, but it's like which one said this? Well, you can tell them all apart because all of their hair is radically different. 
How's that? Okay, walk, so walk me through who each one is. All right, so there's the mom who, if I remember right, is long-haired brunette. And then there's a babysitter who is a long-haired blonde. And then finally, we have a at-home nurse. Or I should say, it's a nurse or a assistant at the hospital who moonlights as a um, at-home nurse for the daughter. And she has short i don't know what do you what would you call it like orange hair yeah it's like like strawberry blonde yeah strawberry blonde so uh, that is how you can you can easily tell them all apart well all of them treat the daughter and the son in such like patronizing ways that i i it was mean-spirited but i got a kick out of it like in the first scene, I think it's the mom, but she's talking to the daughter who's confined to the bed and she's doing like those concentric circles where you have the protractor and you draw a circle around and like do different shapes. And the mom is like, are these more of your silly designs? Like she can't believe her daughter's wasting time on this as opposed to all the other things she could do in bed. Like, did you specifically the mom was like, why are you doing this when you could be watching TV? (laughs) Right. But then there's a later scene. It's the babysitter. She's talking to the son because he's asking about the boogeyman. Like, you know, is the boogeyman real and what what will he do to you? And um, she tells him that if he doesn't go to bed, the boogeyman will eat him. And then she says, do you know what it feels like to get eaten? (laughs) And it's so intense for like this little kid. That was how they did parenting back then. It was all trauma. (laughs) Everything was built on trauma, real or perceived. Yeah. I mean, I guess I grew up in that era as well. But with today's sensibilities, I was like, Jesus. I have a feeling that it used to be even worse and like I guess you probably would have gotten progressively better over time but like like imagine some like shepherd teaching his children like the alphabet and he's just like if you don't remember the letter D the wolves will come eat you yeah in the next scene the sister is talking to the brother alone and she's like you've got to stop making up stories I'm not going to love you anymore if you keep playing pranks (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so harsh <laughs> oh yeah eat your spaghetti you'll die alone oh all right so i think we've covered the characters let's talk about some of the death scenes because the death scenes are pretty infamous and i think pretty well done which ones stand out to you i think it's the oven no contest i think that is the most distinctive kill scene not only of this film possibly in like the top five i've ever seen in italian horror yeah so to put this in context like earlier i was saying the last 30 minutes of this movie are so intense basically you've got the girl who's confined to the bed she's home with her little brother and with the nurse and george eastman gets there and is attacked like the nurse confronts him and he shoves her head in the oven and turns it on 
and I this is like a five minute scene. I don't know where she her face just gradually heats up. I really just expected him to shove her into the oven and then her head would comically burst into flames and that that would be the, the death. Yeah, because that's what happens in most American B horror films. Yeah, but no, that, that is not what happens here. That is remember, a slow roast. Yeah, remember how realistic the bodies were in Beyond the Darkness? Like Joe D'Amato knows how to do his shit, and he really makes us watch this girl suffer, and it's it's super intense. So yeah, I I agree. That's the um. That's the most intense and memorable, I think, scene in the movie. But the one that gets talked a lot, of, a lot about is the saw, the buzz saw through the head. Um, so I don't even remember who that is that George Eastman is attacking, but he's putting <laughs> someone's head through a saw. See, that's what I'm talking about. This movie is about like three or four murder set pieces and then everything else is just like hastily cobbled together. Yeah, I, I'm... I'm okay with that. And like the gob the goblin-esque music is the glue that that holds it to that holds it in place. Yeah. No, I I take your point. Um I'm just the uh, a lot rides on that last 30 minutes for me. Like it, it, there's this just building intensity that it just builds and builds and builds during that scene. That scene those last 30 minutes are just as effective to me as like Halloween. Whereas in Halloween, you have that consistency throughout the whole movie. And this one, you have it confined to that spot, but it's so well done um, with George Eastman basically attacking these people in the house. And then the, the last scene is crazy good. You've got the, the little boy is out on the porch and the police are there and the parents have just gotten there and they're all freaking out and they don't they don't know what to do or what's going on. And the daughter, who has been confined to the bed the whole time, bursts through the front door and like soaked in blood, looking really badass. And then she tells her brother, you don't have to be afraid anymore. And she holds up George Eastman's severed head. This is a super badass ending. Like, what did you think of this whole period of the film? It is a little refreshing to see, like, a happy ending at the at the end of one of these films. Because normally, everybody dies. Nobody makes it out intact. She actually does. She does it. She overcomes her disability or illness or whatever the fuck is wrong with her. Uh, murders as a superhuman psychopath. And, uh, yeah, like, saves her family. Well, what's left of it? Like, the ending is really badass, but at the same time, I think there is a darkness here that you don't often see in American movies, at least. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but when I look at her at the end, I'm not like, oh, yeah, this is a super cool hero. I'm thinking, wow, this girl is going to be damaged for life. Like, she has just been through a horrifying trauma that culminated in her severing the head of a grown-ass man and hoisting it aloft for her little brother to see. Like, th this is going to be a damaging experience. Did, oh, did you yeah. get that at all? Oh, for sure. But not yeah. just for her, but for the little brother. This, Although, 
happens in a lot of different films. Um, I can't think of any other examples, but there'll be a situation where an adult character tells a kid, get the fuck out. This is a bad situation. I need you to go anywhere else. Just go get out. And then the kid starts to leave, comes back, gets back into danger. And then the adult inevitably gets killed or maimed trying to save that kid from the threat. That kid or the kid in that scenario would have so much guilt burdening them for the rest of their life. Yeah. I will say, though, it was hard for me to care as much about the little boy in this movie because I think that performance (laughs) was so bad. Like, he seems strangely aloof in every scene. And for a while, I was like, why is this kid so, like, removed from what's happening? And then I was like, they're probably not actually showing him what's happening. They're probably telling him to look at a blank wall and say, like, look scared. And so, like, of course, he's fucking going to have a blank face. Right. Um, I don't know if that's better or shoving him into this gory psychopathic situation. But the all of the other actors, I think, are pretty good for this kind of movie. But the little boy is is oddly absent. All right. I want to show you something that has absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about. Okay. See my mouse cursor? Yeah. Okay. Do you know what that is? No. Fucking oscillating fan that they just have sitting up there. <laughs> it's not even plugged in. The cord's wrapped around it. Why the fuck is that there? I, they needed somewhere to set it. <laughs> this and it's never going to aim down. It's only going to go left and right. <laughs> what do they think yeah. Americans do with their oscillating fans? <laughs> Maybe I don't know that. if you're going to include this in the podcast, but just to give an example of, of what we're looking at or to paint a picture of what we were looking at it is an oscillating fan that turns left to right mounted on top of a light board meant for x-rays in a doctor's office there is no possible way that this fan is circulating air in a way that benefits anybody except maybe <laughs> like a spider or a cobweb in the corner of the, of the ceiling i mean it looks this to me perfect, like this is perfectly representative of like the detail in this movie right here it, it looks like they just need somewhere to store it where it's like precariously balanced halfway off the ledge probably more than halfway <laughs> yeah looking at it, i'm not even sure how it's staying there yeah <laughs> anyway the movie's full of little details like this like everywhere but this is the one that really comes to mind and in, in that way it reminds me of pieces another italian slasher movie that is has its oddities like this but to go back to the this scene in the house the sort of cat and mouse scene at some point the daughter blinds him and it's really intense because now he's blind and she can barely walk and he's stumbling around trying to get her i just wait wait i just came i just realized we never really talked about what was up with this daughter right yeah, I don't really know what's up with her. All right. So she is bound, she is bed bound. We covered that. Right. She can only look straight up out of this hospital bed that is augmented with what looks like a torture implement from the Inquisition <laughs> at the head of the bed that is, I guess, aligning her spinal cord, like constantly pulling on her. 
while yeah, she's in bed. At some point, the nurse says something about she has to stay there so that her spinal cord can c- correct. Yeah. Um, maybe this is a jab at like U.S. healthcare, but I don't think this is a thing. <laughs> this is definitely not a thing now. Right. I don't think it was a thing then either. I mean, I think they like to think from uh, as to think like George Eastman for a moment. I need to write a movie where I have the suspense of someone being bed bound for 90% of the movie, but she's still able to get up and be badass in the last 10 minutes. It feels kind of artificial. So I assumed that she was cured by the time that she got out of bed coincidentally or maybe her adrenal is pumping so hard that like as soon as the credits start rolling she just clumps to the ground like a like dead weight like what i was thinking and i don't know if this is right this is just what i was thinking um what i was thinking is that she's not actually in pain or anything that this is like a corrective thing or a preventative thing like if we don't fix your spinal cord, you're going to be paralyzed when you're old or you're going to have horrible arthritis or something. So when she's moving around at the end, it's not that she's really overcoming anything. She might be dealing more damage to her spine uh, in the long term, but she's just interrupting her treatment. Like, does that make sense? Yeah, I thought they were going to I thought the plot was going to veer into this to the end where like some of the regenerative regenerative properties of like psycho man's blood was going to like get into her system and like cure her. And then there would be like the ominous before credit scene where like she, you start to see her becoming maybe a little unhinged. And then that's, I, when, that's when the movie would end. That would have been cool. I would have liked yeah. that. I, I thought that's where they were going, but you know, whatever. I hadn't thought uh, of I don't that. Write but... screenplays. Uh, whatever. Whatever. Yeah, I would be totally down for that. Maybe we should write a screenplay. Maybe that should be the second iteration of Video Store Nightmares. Yeah, bring back Absurd 2022. <laughs> well, it's a, so she blinds him, and I thought this was like genius. Oh, for with a couple, the compass. She blinds him with the compass. Yeah. Um, I think this is genius for a few reasons. Uh, one they act as if it heightens all his other senses. So like at one point, she puts on loud music so he won't be able to hear where she is. I was like, that's really smart. And then I was also thinking, and they had, if she was going to damage him in some way, they had to do something where he wouldn't just regenerate. So taking his eyes, I don't know if you can regenerate your eyes or not, but I I buy that there's a little more damage there. And so I just thought, like, you know, as as lazily written as this movie is, there are moments where I think, wow, that's actually pretty smart. Well, I don't think this guy's regenerative power is really limited except for no hedge trauma. As long as he's not hitting. What did they, what did they call it? Nobody ever says shoot him in the head or chop his head off. They say something very specific. It's something like um, the brain is the weakness. I totally forgot how his re- revealing as a as a priest when they like open the, the <laughs> collar of his like trench coat was supposed to be a big reveal. And I'm like, I just assumed this guy was a priest from the moment we saw him. I think that we I think we see his um, white collar earlier, but the police don't. 
Oh, okay. But yeah, that scene was very odd. I because I didn't realize that they didn't already know he was a priest. While we're on this character, we didn't really talk about it, but there's a lot of scenes where he's running, like he's doing cardio. <laughs> yeah. And you can tell he did no training at all for this film. It's like you just asked some like dude in his 40s to get up and do some jogging. And uh, he like kind of starts to get there. And then he's like, God, I'm 40. And this like slows down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you had just <laughs> if you had just followed this, you know, mutant monster man across the world from Greece to get to, you know, California or wherever this is. Um, and all you had to eat was whatever you could like quickly grab while the monster is eating people like you would be more attuned to the the natural exertion necessary uh, than this okay. guy is i buy that we're, we're looking way too much in the script which i still appreciate um i don't think this guy's actually been eating anyone he's just a murderer right he's not cannibalizing anyone um yeah i guess you're right yeah i mean maybe they should have put that in just i was just extra, you know, i guess i was just conflating it with anthropophagus and like um, every other movie this guy has done apparently yeah and he's in one that's literally called cannibal man <laughs> <laughs> wow they they really brainstormed that title huh <laughs> yeah well he might have written it i don't know it's like the worst Mega Man boss all right anything else you want to um talk about before we get to final thoughts okay so um you know there's a lot of horror films well let me rephrase this if you've ever taken a film class right there's usually some discussion on horror films that talks about the victims and how a properly balanced screenplay will frame some sort of justification for the victims fates so you have promiscuous teenagers, right? So they're like, they're an affront to like God's glory <laughs> by, <laughs> by violating, um, you know, abstinence. So they get to get, you know, viciously stabbed with butcher knives by Jason and summer camp or whatever. So, you know, whenever, whenever I see a horror movie, I try to think of like, is someone actually trying to justify, you know, these deaths in, in the screenplay? By the way, I think that theory is like, fucking bogus i think people just write fucking movies where people get mutilated and murdered for whatever reason i don't think there needs to be a justification but when we go to the football game right or the the the, the dinner party there is you know they bring out the wives bring out the food dutifully from the kitchen right while the men drink and watch football and one of the women puts out a bowl of of plain dry spaghetti and everybody just kind of takes tongs and takes some dry plain spaghetti out of a bowl and serves themselves and they just eat it like that like that, is, that is justification for getting killed by a uh nomadic <laughs> regenerative psycho man oh it Speaking of justifications for actions, there's one other part we didn't talk about that I wanted to. Um, and that's the uh, the father character oh, feeling no. guilty because he hit George Eastman on the road. Oh, this is such a this is such a, a 
real American working or upper middle class working problem. This this shit happens all the time where you have a drunk driver that is driving late at night or something. They hit someone on the side of the road and they just freak out and fucking drive off. And then they just try to figure out how can they hide this as much as possible. Nowadays, it's really hard to get away with that. But in the 80s, probably not as bad. It, it was just a really interesting little subplot because it only takes up maybe five minutes of the film and there's no resolution to it ever. Um, there's just a discussion where the dad is like, I feel really bad about this happening. I just I left this guy on the road, even though I know he wasn't dead. It was just it's very odd. Although the guy, the so George Eastman is on the side of the road um, when he gets hit and then being hit um, leads to this guy on a motorcycle stopping to help him. That guy who stops is played by Michael Suave, who um, was a great Italian director in his own right. He did Cemetery Man, uh, The Church, um, uh, I'm blanking. He's the guy in Gates of Hell that watches the his girlfriend vomit up her guts. Ah, oh, okay. I, I, I get that one. He's the guy in Demons that wears the mask at the beginning and hands out movie tickets. Anyway, cool little cameo appearance in the movie. All right, why don't you give your final thoughts and a rating out of four? I can't remember if it was our third or fourth episode where we covered Beyond the Darkness. It was our first Joe D'Amato title. And we introduced this, or you introduced this guy through a quote in an interview where he thought he was not a good filmmaker, that he was just all about creating schlock with shock value. And we didn't really understand what he was getting at because Beyond the Darkness, although had a lot of um, depravity in it, was whether by design or accident, um, an actually balanced film, um, the, a, g- a good entry into Italian horror. Uh, I I can totally see where he's coming from now with this film. Um, this is the third Joe Namato film I've seen. Um, the second one was uh, Death Smiles at a Murderer, which is a way cooler title than Absurd and was probably a more... It's definitely a, a stranger, more untraditional film than this one. Um, I think Absurd is probably on the weaker end of what I've seen so far. Uh, let's talk about the, the strengths. The murder scenes are probably some of the most iconic we have ever seen of, of, of Italian horror so far. Um, oven scene notwithstanding, you also have a scene where a guy gets basically bisected by a table saw. And a scene where <laughs> where we actually have the the psycho cannibal man pulling out his own te- his own intestines from an opening in his stomach uh if you ever see the box for this um it has basically him pulling his intestines out it's it's way more uh dramatized in the box art but it's you know, it's the same shit the music is top notch you know we played the trailer like you got to hear it for yourself this is like this is the shit that people make soundtracks out of for like compilations of Italian horror music. 
this is probably how much do you think that like a soundtrack like a record of this would go for i don't think they released one um but assuming it came out on beat the italian beat label with like you know all the Fulci soundtracks and the argento soundtracks um most of those go anywhere between like 150 and 500 yeah this is definitely like if it was an album some guy out there would be charging 500 dollars for it and it's not hard to see why this is like some hot shit it's certainly been pressed now but i don't think they released it back then and uh and you know directing wise uh i think this is this is very competently directed like the shots are well done um you know the lighting's great there's a lot of inconsistencies with setting and plot like this movie is supposed to take place over one night but like the light is the time of day actually shifts <laughs> like between the the scenes but you know whatever it's, it's not a big deal the problem is that these positive aspects are cobbled together into this like bizarre simulacrum of fucking garbage like it's it's none of it matches it's Oh, there's got to be a, okay. Imagine you took, imagine you broke a dish, like your favorite dish out of your pantry. You just dropped it on the kitchen floor and then you decided to rebuild it and you used duct tape. That is like absurd. It's like all the aspects of your favorite plate and it's combined with fucking duct tape or maybe with like different types of tape. You can be like packing and the, the clear shit that like no one uses and um, electric tape. It's just kind of cobbled together. That's what this shit is. So there are like really cool parts of this film. I just feel like they came up with the cool parts and then kind of did like a struggle to figure out how to combine it all together. That said, um, although this movie drags a little bit, you are kind of hanging in there for the last 30 minutes. If you've never seen this film before, you don't have that mindset though. So um, I don't know, maybe if you show this to your friends, tell them about that. Be like, hey, you're watching an hour to enjoy the last 30 minutes. Is that really any worse than telling someone to watch like the first three episodes of a 25 like episode seven season show to tell them that, that that's what they have to do to get into it? Like, I don't know. I don't even know what I think. About. <laughs> I really don't know what to think here. There, there's because there are really cool aspects of this film, but like as a whole altogether, it just didn't really jive with me. Um, I'm going to give it a very hazy two stars because I like the parts that I like a lot. And I have to just pretend that maybe like two thirds of this movie doesn't exist. And it's kind of sad for me. I can definitely see where you're coming from. And I think that that's, that's pretty fair. I am more charitable towards this movie. I like it more than that. Um, I actually don't think it's that far off in quality from beyond the darkness. I think both are leagues better than Anthropophagus, which is the one that gets the most attention. But I think the worst that can be said about this movie is that it's sloppy. It's obviously not written by somebody who's like an, a talented, experienced screenwriter. But there are great moments in it where I think it's being really smart and smarter than most slasher movies. Um, same with Joe D'Amato. Like, his directing is haphazard. It's uh, wavers in quality throughout the film, but when it's good, it's good. And he he is a master at combining like violence with 
poetry with music and just assaulting your senses with it. And I, I think that the last 30 minutes of this movie are a masterpiece. Like, yeah, it's kind of Halloween derivative. It's It follows a slasher formula, but it's got that odd Italian sheen on it. it it's got the overpowering progressive rock music. It's got the moments of oddity and surrealism um it seems to exist outside of time and place even though you know as we talked about in the episode it's likely just an attempt to be in america even though they're filming in italy and like don't know how americans actually live but it doesn't bother me it creates um like an alternative reality almost i think the the worst thing about this movie is the pacing i think that it starts off pretty strong, like I'm pretty interested in a B-movie way. Then there's a good 30 minutes where it really drags and I have trouble following which character is which. And like, is this the babysitter or the nurse or the mother? And where is the little boy right now? And like, I, a lot of that I feel like is, is clumsy. Um, but then the last 30 minutes uh, are a masterpiece. Uh, I think among the most effective horror films ever so if i'm weighing like a two-star movie against a five-star movie i guess i'm going gonna go in the middle and give it three stars we did not mention this at all but there are a lot of shots where we get to see what's on television and the entire football game is in slow motion is that i didn't even notice that yeah they actually show a real football game like obviously archival footage but it's slow down. Like the whole move, the whole football game is one slow mo replay. No, I did. I did not notice that. Uh, maybe because I was watching on VHS and it was grainy. But don't know. Anyway, let's consult the Magic Eight Ball and find out what we're going to be watching next week. All right, next week, I'm actually really excited for Leland to watch this because I just saw it recently and I was like, nobody I know has seen this movie. I need to talk about it. And that is 1994's Shatter Dead. This is one of the most creative zombie films I've ever seen. And I'm normally not like a big zombie movie person. Have you, do you know anything about this one, Leland? No, this one is unfamiliar to me. It's very low budget. It's shot on video, but it's got a very interesting take on what a zombie apocalypse would be like. And it's got a very odd tone and atmosphere that I find really enchanting, sort of. So anyway, I'm curious. Uh, I'm really curious what you think about it. Um, and I'm pumped to, to talk about that with somebody. Other than that, you all can follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares. You know, come interact with us there. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to us. That'll help us out. And Leland, do you have any last words? Thank you for your continued support. Beautiful. We will talk to you all next week about 1994's Shatter Dead.
Ah, 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 ah,